You are listening to RudolfSteinerAudio.com. If you are listening to the podcast of this, it is located at RudolfSteiner.Podbean.com. Please consider becoming a patron. As well, there are two publishing houses, SteinerBooks.org in America and RudolfSteinerPress.com in England, who are the sole publishers of Steiner into English and have given me permission to do these recordings. Please consider patronizing them as well. You are listening to RudolfSteinerAudio.com. This is a reading of a collection of lectures by Rudolf Steiner entitled How the Spiritual World Projects into Physical Existence, The Influence of the Dead. This is Lecture 5, given in Paris on the 5th of May, 1913. Today I intend to speak about an important concept in esoteric science. It contains the connection between microcosm and macrocosm. In esoteric science, we have a number of key terms, key themes that run through the whole esoteric movement. One is the concept of rhythmic number, another that of microcosm and macrocosm. The secret of number is evident in that certain phenomena follow one another so that the seventh occurrence may be said to mark the conclusion of an event, the eighth the beginning of a new event. In the physical world, this fact is reflected in the relationship of the octave to the prime. For anyone seeking to enter into occult worlds, this principle becomes the basis for a comprehensive philosophy. Not only musical notes follow the law of number, but also events in time. In the spiritual world, events are arranged in such a way that we see a relationship there which is like that in the rhythm of musical notes. The relationship between microcosm and macrocosm is even more important. We see it reflected wherever we go. Considering the way the whole plant relates to the seed, we see the whole plant to be a macrocosm, the seed a microcosm. In a way, the forces distributed over the whole plant are brought together as if in a point in the seed. In a similar way, we can call the development of an individual person from childhood to old age to be a microcosm, the development of a nation a macrocosm. Every nation has its childhood when it takes in important elements of civilization. An example are the Romans who took in Greek civilization. A nation grows and develops and finds in itself the powers for further development. It is important, therefore, that the member of a nation goes through everything the nation goes through. He relates to his nation as the seed does to the plant. The highest degree of relation between microcosm and macrocosm we see in the human being as he presents himself in the world perceived through the senses and the cosmos. The way a person is present in the world perceived through the senses is that the powers of the whole universe are concentrated in him or her, like the powers of the whole plant in the seed. Now we may ask, are these powers in the human being also spread out in some way in the macrocosm as the powers in the seed spread over the whole plant? The answer can only come from esoteric science, for in his life on earth the human being only gets to know himself as microcosm. Yet he does not only live in a microcosm, but has a life also in the universe, 
Initially, it is just words when we say that in their experience of the waking and the sleep state, human beings alternate between life in the microcosm and life in the macrocosm. When we enter into sleep, the conscious mind ceases to be active and effectively ceases to exist for us. An external science will fail in its attempts to find in a sleeping person the element that is his inner life when awake. Even just logically it is impossible to think that the inner life is destroyed on going to sleep and emerges again from the void on waking. In external science it will have to be admitted in the not-too-distant future that external material facts tell us as little of the inner life as knowing the laws pertaining to oxygen means we know the lung. We study the organic functions of the lung for this, and so we also realize that the external laws say nothing about the physical life which we inhale on waking and exhale on going to sleep. To the occultist, going to sleep and waking up is simply a breathing process. Where is this element of spirit and soul when the human being is asleep, corresponding to the air he has exhaled? Occult science shows that this element is enveloped by the spirit world's atmosphere, just as we are enveloped by the airy atmosphere, the difference being that the latter extends for a few miles whilst the former fills the universe. Let us consider the amount of air a human being has inhaled and relate this to the atmosphere as a whole. The air which has been inhaled into the human body becomes part of the atmosphere when exhaled. In occult terms we may thus say that after inhalation it is in the microcosm, after exhalation in the macrocosm. In the same way the life of soul and spirit which is active in our body is in the microcosm from waking to sleeping, in the macrocosm from going to sleep to waking. External physical science teaches existence of the physical atmosphere. Occult science tells of the spiritual macrocosm that takes in our soul when we sleep. Spiritual knowledge is gained by spiritual methods, by initiation. The life of the soul within the microcosm is known from daily experience. Life within the macrocosm of spirit and soul becomes known to us through initiation. This science must be considered before the transition from microcosm to macrocosm can be understood. It gains particular significance because with it we enter into the spiritual world after death. Stepping on the threshold of death merely means that the soul is finally leaving the body. The method of initiation teaches subtle exercises for the soul. In everyday life we have an influence on our physical environment. We must get the soul into a condition where spirit and soul influence the macrocosm and gain impressions from it. We must seek to free our powers of spirit and soul which are bound to life in a body. Three powers of soul are bound up with the body in ordinary life and initiation frees them. The first of these is the power of thought. In ordinary life we use it to form ideas, thoughts about the things around us. 
Let us try and enter into the nature of this power of thought. What happens when we think and form ideas? People who work in physical science will also admit that every time they have a thought relating to something perceived through the senses, a process of destruction occurs in the brain. We have to destroy fine structures in the brain, as is sufficiently evident from the fact that we grow tired. Anything that has been destroyed by everyday thinking is restored again in sleep. With the method of initiation we achieve a condition where we free the power of thought from the physical brain. In that case, nothing is destroyed. We achieve this by means of meditation, concentration, contemplation. These are the processes in the soul that differ from the ordinary inner life. The ideas and processes in the soul within us in everyday life are not really suitable for producing meditation in the soul. Other processes have to be chosen for this. An example will show this. Imagine two glasses, one is empty, the other half full. Then imagine that we pour water from the half-filled glass into the empty one. And imagine that the half-full one is getting fuller and fuller in the process. A materialist would consider this to be a foolish notion. But when we have an idea that is suitable for meditation, it is not something real in the physical sense, but something that creates ideas in the soul. It is exactly because it does not relate to anything real that this idea diverts the mind from reality. It can be a symbol, however, a symbol for the process in the soul that is bound up with the secret of love. Love is like the half-full glass. You pour some of its content into an empty glass, and yet it gets fuller. The soul does not grow more empty. It grows fuller to the extent to which it gives away. Such can be the significance of this symbol. If we now take such an idea and focus all the powers of our soul on it, that is meditation. We must forget all else, including ourselves. The whole of our inner life must be focused on it for a long time, something like a quarter of an hour. It is not enough to do such an exercise once or a few times. It has to be repeated over and over again. Depending on the individual's nature, it will become evident that the inner life is changing in the process. We find that we develop a power of thought that does not destroy the brain. People going through this development will realize that the meditation does not tire them or destroy the brain. The fact that beginners tend to go to sleep while meditating would seem to contradict this. But that is because we are still attached to the outside world in the beginning and have not yet freed our thoughts from the brain. When repeated efforts have freed the powers of thought from the brain, when we have learned to meditate without growing tired, the whole of our human life is transformed. We are now consciously the way we have uh, let me read that again, sorry, we are now consciously the way we have until now been without conscious awareness and went out of the body during sleep. And just as we think our capital I within our skin in everyday life, so we experience ourselves out of the body after meditation. The body becomes an object for us to look at. But now we get to know this in a different way than we do in sleep. 
we get to know it like magnetic forces that chain us to the body. It is something we want to enter into wholly and completely, and we realize that the powers which draw us to our physical body every morning are the ones which, before birth, fetched us from the spiritual world, making us look for the hereditary streams to find a new body. This tells us why we felt drawn to our parents and ancestors. There is one idea we can treat as an exception, an experience in the soul that differs from those we have at the transition from microcosm to macrocosm. Looking at the body from the macrocosm, we say with everything we learn, this is outside of us. Once we have woken the Paul experience in us, however, we have developed a soul element that is even then an outer one in us. When we are out of the body, we feel the Christ experience to be an inner one. We may call this the first meeting with the Christ impulse in the macrocosm. We must now consider a second kind of initiation power. Just as we free the power of thought, so we can also release the power which we use to express ourselves in speech. In materialistic science, the view is that motor speech organs have their center in Broca's area of the brain, in the brain. But it is not that Broca's area has developed speech, but rather that speech has developed Broca's area. The power of thought is destructive. Speech coming from the social environment is constructive. We are now able to release the power which Broca's area develops. We do so by imbuing our meditation with feeling values. When I meditate on, quote, wisdom shines in the light, close quote, this again does not reflect an external truth, but it does have profound meaning. If we imbue our feelings with, quote, we want to live with all the light that lets wisdom shine, close quote, we feel how we take hold of the power, which otherwise comes to expression in words and now lives in our soul. When we speak of silence being golden, this refers to the following. We have a power in our soul which creates the word. We can take hold of this just as we do of the power of thought. We then overcome time, just as by taking hold of the power of thought, we overcome space. Memory, which in everyday life goes back to childhood, will then extend to life before birth. This is the way of learning about the life from our past death, excuse me, from our last death to our present birth, and also the way of seeing through human evolution. We see through the powers that guide the evolution of human history, and we gain insight into the life from birth to death. When we develop the power of the unspoken word, we gain insight into the spiritual basis of life on earth. Here we come again to an historical event, the mystery on Golgotha. For this is the road along which we find the ascending and descending evolution of humanity and the point where the Christ incarnated. He is recognized the way he is in his very own power. By freeing thought, we connect with the Christ as he was on earth. By freeing the word, we connect with the mystery on Golgotha. This casts a special light on the first line in John's Gospel.
A third power also gains independence through meditation. It involves not only brain and larynx, but also the circulation in the heart. We are aware of it in a low-level activity, when we blush or grow pale. There, a soul element intervenes in the blood's pulsation, going as far as the heart. This power of the soul may be withdrawn from the blood's pulsation and become an independent inner power. It comes about through meditation at the point where the will enters into it. We meditate, quote, wisdom shines in the light, close quote, but decide to connect our will to act with it in such a way that we want to go with this radiant wisdom in human evolution. When we come to such a will meditation, we get the powers of will to flow into the soul. We can find these powers and withdraw them from the blood, though not entirely. And they then create a power of clairvoyance, which allows us to go beyond our earth. We come to perceive the earth to be a re-embodied planet that will re-embody again, and we human beings with it. Thus we grow into the macrocosm through the world of spirit and soul. In a way we learn how life between death and birth must be the opposite of life in an incarnation. An initiate learns about experiences gained after death, free of the body. Let us take the main characteristic of what has been offered to us when free of the body. It is the same experience as in life after death. Living in the microcosm we gain perceptions through the physical organ of the senses. After death we look at the body as the initiate does. Then we cannot perceive the things which our sense organs perceive. The initiate is able to recognize the life between death and rebirth because he has made the transition from microcosm to macrocosm whilst still here. We cannot converse with the dead in ordinary human language. But when we have freed the power of speech, we can see how we are together with the dead. By freeing the power of thought, we are able to converse with those who are between death and rebirth. Let me give you an example. A seer was able to converse with a dead individual who had been a splendid person but had cared for his family only in material terms. He had no religious and anthroposophical ideas. The seer was able to learn the following from this individual, quote, I know I have lived with my family, and they were my sunshine. They are still alive, I know. But I am only able to see them up to the point in time where I left the earth. It is not possible to make a connection with them. Conditions are complicated after death. The seer was able to see that the wife still showed something in her nature of the consequences of having been with her husband. The husband was able to see these consequences, but not the way we see a person, but as if in a mirror. There is a way of seeing when over there, but it is as if it were a mirror image. This feels hideous because one does not see the real person as he or she is. In the world, perceived through the senses, we see the bodily aspect. Afterward, we must be able to see the soul aspect. But just as we do not see a candle in a dark room unless it has been lit, so in this case, too, insight is reduced, dimmed down. It is nevertheless possible for the dead individual and the individual on earth 
to be connected if the latter imbues himself with spiritual life. That is the basis for the good we can do for the dead. Someone has gone through the gate of death with whom we share certain interests. We can read to him. We imagine that he is there before us and read to him in silence. We can also send him thoughts. But we will only gain an impression if we send him ideas and concepts that have spiritual life. The mission of anthroposophy will be understood if we know that we must get rid of the abyss that separates us from the dead. Souls that had been opposing anthroposophy may also feel that being thus read to is a benison. There are two sides to our inner life, consciously living through things and the deep-down parts of the soul, which, like the depths of the sea, are evident only in the waves at the top. We may hear, for instance, that only one of two brothers is an anthroposophist, while the other opposes anthroposophy. This can only be a fact in the outside world. The inner process is that there is a profound longing for something religious, and one seeks to numb this by rejecting anthroposophy. The idea one has in one's conscious mind is merely an opiate so that one may forget what is there in the depths. Death removes all this, and then we do indeed hunger for what we had unconsciously longed for. This is why reading anthroposophical writings to them is such a benison, and the readers aside, benison means blessing, and the readers aside. Awareness of being connected with the dead comes gradually, but even before that, we risk nothing more than that the dead individual does not listen when we read to him. We see, therefore, that the dead and the living, microcosm and macrocosm, connect with one another when anthroposophical teaching is taken up in a living way. This also happens in another sphere. When the seer observes people who are asleep, he sees that souls go through the gate of death that never have any spiritual interests and others that take in spiritual thoughts during the day. A difference is apparent. The sleeping souls are like seed grain in a field. There would be starvation in the spiritual world if no spiritual thoughts were brought there. The dead feed on the spiritual. The anthroposophical ideas brought there by people going to sleep. If we do not take spiritual concepts with us on going to sleep, we deprive the dead of food. By reading to them we give them spiritual stimulus. The spiritual ideas we take with us on going to sleep nourish the dead. Human beings become a bridge between microcosm and macrocosm by being active in their souls. The things we make our own are like a seed grain. I would say the living and not just the theoretical mission of anthroposophy is as follows. Theory is transformed into the elixir of life. Immortality is experienced. Just as a seed guarantees the next seed, so do we develop powers in spirit and soul that guarantee a coming back in a next life on earth. We do not merely understand, but live the immortality in us. That is how we experience that which goes through the gate of death from the moment when our hair goes gray. In this sense, anthroposophy will be the elixir of life, like the blood that moves through our physical body. And only then will anthroposophy be what it is meant to be. 
If we come to realize this and want to sum it up in a fundamental feeling, the fundamental feeling that the human soul is connected with the spiritual world, as our physical body is connected with the physical world, human beings will know that they speak to the human mind, the spirits in the far horizons of space. They change as time progresses. In living experience, the human soul, not limited by horizons of space nor lost in the progress of time, enters the realm of the eternities. The end of Lecture 5